Well, good morning, church. I am excited about tonight and Sam coming and reminding us of the why. Why? Behind what we're doing, why we're making this um, change and the benefits of it. And so I encourage you to uh, join uh, this evening uh, to hear a little more of the why and get excited about that, uh, that move that God, we believe God is, is allowing us to take. And, uh, and if that doesn't do it, we have some pie. All right? Yes, for you, Mark. And as many of you know, I was a pastor of an evangelical free church in Portland, Maine for 21 years. And all but three of those years, I served as co-pastor, in which one of my primary responsibilities was uh, the privilege of preaching. And you had uh, 18 years of preaching to six years of preaching in New York and almost seven years of preaching here. And that's a lot of preaching. I mention that not as a humble brag, but to say that while I considered a privilege to have preached for 31 years, the whole thing of preaching still remains somewhat a mystery to me. Honestly, there are things I still don't know. Reminds me of a young single man with no kids who graduated with a Ph.D. in child psychology. And very sure of his position, his Ph.D. thesis was published with the title, Five Definitive Principles for Child-Rearing. Five Definitive Principles for Child-Rearing. Then he got married and he had his first child. (laughs) He has to redo his thesis and change the title to Five principles for child-rearing, dropping the word definitive. And then his second child came along, and he changed it to five thoughts on child-rearing. And by the time he had his fifth child, he had changed it to, help me, I'm dying. Help me, I'm dying. And I'm sure many of you can appreciate that. I was, in fact, the perfect parent until I had kids. And I equate that to preaching for a living. I began my preaching ministry fully convinced that if you preach it, they will come. And while that may sound a little simplistic, I stand before you over 30 years later no less confident in the power of God's Word and no less committed to preaching's primary place in the church. And yet, sadly, many churches have sacrificed the centrality of biblical preaching on the altar of man-centered pragmatism, whatever works, or church growth techniques, or worldly gimmicks. Pastor Stephen Lawson put it this way, man-centered schemes are followed, often imitating the world's schemes. The flesh provides the energy, and man receives the glory. He says, in a strange twist, the preaching of the cross is now foolishness, not only to the world, but also to the contemporary church. That should not be. And that introduces us to our subject matter for today as we turn our attention to, the, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. I would invite you to turn there in your Bibles. It's after the Gospels and then Acts and Romans and then 
right there is 1 Corinthians. We'll be looking at chapter 1. And we, and we kicked off our eight-week series on Church Awakening last week by looking at the first 17 verses of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians. And you might recall that last week we saw this church in Corinth founded by the Apostle Paul in a relatively short period of time, maybe three to five years, was drifting. The Corinthian church was a church with problems. It was dysfunctional in so many ways. They were a pretty messed up bunch. And so Paul writes to the church in Corinth issuing a call to wake up. To wake up. And I believe the call is for the church in America today as well to see how far we have drifted. The call is to each local church to wake up to what it is Jesus is building. We must awaken and face the reality of the difficult times in which we live. We must awaken to any signs of erosion in our lives as the people of God. And yes, I have chosen the worst case scenario of the church in Corinth, not so that we might feel better about ourselves, but that we stay awake at the wheel. I believe that by looking at a church that has drifted from the basics, we'll be able to better identify any drifting in our own lives and to resolve to stop the erosion wherever that may be. That's personally and on a local level. And I've chosen eight passages in Corinthians to help us refocus, to help us refocus, refocus uh, as, as individuals, as families, to refocus uh, on our mission as a church and, and our means for accomplishing that mission. Our mission as a church, simply put, is to make disciples. It's not profound, I suppose. It's not the, the best thing that's out there, I suppose. But I believe it's spot on that we are called to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Everything we do here ought to be because of that mission. And the means for doing that fall under four headings, you've heard me speak of it before, of engaging, establishing, equipping, and evangelizing. And last week we, we looked at the first D of engaging, it reminded us that we ought to be a welcoming church that engages people into the life of our church, and if we are to do that, we must get along. There must be unity, for unity is attractive. Well, our second need that we're going to look at this morning is establishing. My desire, the desire of, 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 of the church leadership is that all who enter here are established in the Word of God and established in friendships and relationships as we do life together. Because the church is a community. But more than that, it's, it's more than, than just this social gathering. We are a gospel community. A church is a gospel community because everything around, revolves around Christ crucified. That's really my theme this morning. And so I want to give you three principles. The first principle is uh, our belief in, is in Christ crucified. Our belief is in Christ crucified. Now, I want to go back to verse 17 before we look at 18 to kind of get the flow of thought here. So join with me, look with me at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And we saw last week Paul's priority for ministry was to preach. 
Continue the last half of verse 17. Not with words of human wisdom. We're going to see a lot of that this morning. Lest the cross be emptied of its power. Now verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now the word for foolishness, I find it interesting. Maybe you, you won't. But the word for foolishness is where we get our English word moron. From a world's perspective, only a moron would believe the message of the cross. I think of the late, and I could give plenty of examples, but I think of the late uh, Stephen Hawking, the British physicist who had a brilliant mind. I, I think he rated as a genius. But he was, he was an atheist. And he said this about Christianity. He said, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark. In other words, the message of the cross is foolishness. You are a moron to believe that stuff. Well, why would the message of the cross be foolishness to the world? Well, it's the cross that says uh, someone has, had to die in your place. Because we're all sinners. It's the cross that declares that God must judge our sin. The cross. Now to the Jewish mind, which is the part of the group that Paul is writing to here, uh, the cross, uh, the worst argument you could offer a Jewish person was to start with the cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree, they would say. The cross just, just turned them off. I mean, we've sanitized the cross and, and domesticated it. I mean, we gold-plate it and, and wear it around our necks. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but that's what we do with it. We, we hang decorated crosses in our churches and on our steeples. This would have been unthinkable in the first century. The crucifixion was horrific. It was for the worst of criminals, and it, would have been spoken, it wouldn't have been spoken in, in polite company. I mean, it would be like... Uh, us putting on a gas chamber or an electric chair and a necklace and wearing it around our neck. Following a man who died on a cross would be revolting to a Jew. Foolishness. Absolutely foolishness. And it might appear foolish to the unbelieving world, but that shouldn't be the case for those who are saved. Because the message of the cross, listen, it's powerful. It's powerful enough to reach those who are broken. It's powerful enough to reach those who are wounded. It's powerful enough to reach those who realize their sin and that nothing else in this world works. The ones who would respond to the message of the cross would be those who have come to the end of themselves and see their need for a Savior. Church, let's not lose confidence in the message of the cross. It has the power to save. We don't have to doctor it up. Now Paul shifts in the power of the cross to speak of the wisdom of God. Look with me at verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. 
God was pleased to the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. You know, I thought about this some more, about the wisdom of the world, and we often look to the wisdom of people to solve our problems. While human wisdom is impressive in certain areas, it's profoundly weak in others. The brilliant institutions around the world and the outstanding minds and and universities and laboratories and field of medicine are all helpful in many ways. God isn't against wisdom, but human wisdom, though, is powerless when confronted with the fundamental need of humanity. It is powerless to bring us to God. I mean, we could bring all the brilliant minds together in one room, and there would stand one thing in common. They have no answer in themselves for their sin, never mind the sin of the world. We often look to the the world for the answers. Paul McCartney said, when the brokenhearted people living in the world agree, there will be an answer, let it be. For they may be parted, there's still a chance that they will see there will be an answer. Let it be. No, there won't. There won't be an answer to the deepest problem of humanity. How much should we place our trust and confidence in any human to solve our problems? Where is the answer found? Not in human wisdom. Not in the bright ideas of excellent communicators. Not in hearing rambling thoughts or speculation. The answer is not found in telling the audience how good they are or to get positive thinking to work for you. No, true divine wisdom and power is found in the message of Christ crucified. For verse 25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. Put anyone's up against God and, and there's no match. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And you go, well, wait a minute. Is is God foolish? When is God ever weak? Well, that's spoken of from a human perspective that whatever might appear foolish to us, at that very point, it's infinitely wiser than us from from God's perspective. We think about it, some of the things that God has done, and we go, well, that's kind of foolish. I think about when when, when the Israelites in the Old Testament, they marched around the wall as a strategy for battle for seven days. That was the best they could do. That seemed kind of foolish. Or when God downsized Gideon's army, oh, you don't need that many. You need less than that to go out into, into battle. That looked foolish. When people turned to, in 2 Corinthians 20, uh, Chronicles 20, when, when people turned a battlefield into a sing-along and set the opposing army into confusion, it looked Foolish. It's not the way you fight. And when we see events happening today and we wonder what in the world is God up to, it may seem foolish. But at that very point, listen, God is infinitely wiser than all brilliant minds combined. And we can't understand what God is up to. Remember, the mind of God is absolutely beyond our ability to comprehend. God's smallest act of power is able to do more than what man's power could ever even begin to think of doing. Consider the weakness, appearance of weakness when Jesus went on the cross. 
took a beating, he, he, the punishment for our sins, uh, and, and mocking, and, and he was being mocked and ridiculed by his enemies, and there were some who, who laughed and said, ha, he could save others and he can't even save himself. How weak of a man he is. And the weakest moment was an exhibition of the power of the cross that is infinitely mightier than the most powerful person then, now, or ever. The cross is not to be emptied of its power. It has the power to save. Let's not lose confidence in the message of the cross because our belief is in Christ crucified. We don't apologize for that. Secondly, our boast is in Christ crucified. Our boast is in Christ crucified. Look at me at verse 26. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. He's talking to the Corinthian church here. He says, not, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. He's talking to the church in Corinth. He says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. The church in Corinth seemed to be a very unimpressive bunch. And yet I, I, I look around this room and I see those who are, are influential, those who are intelligent, those who have done very well for themselves. I, I, I see those around this room who are very skilled and, and very talented and, and some that we say they're very successful. What's Paul's point here? He's saying that no matter our status in life, that no matter the number of degrees next to our name, or the number of digits next to our paycheck. No matter the influence of our last name, he's saying no one is better than anyone else. No one is better or more privileged when it comes to the cross. And God constantly takes the world's standards and he flips it on its head. And church, we need to be a part of that. That's a gospel community. It's a community that says, you are welcome here. It doesn't matter how much education you have. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how much you have messed up in life. We will love you. We will accept you. We will treat you as an equal. Equal doesn't mean sameness, but we'll treat you as an equal. It's been said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are an equal community that can never boast before the Lord that God is fortunate to have us on his team. Right? Secretly, oh, he's got a good one here. It's because of something good in us that we're saved. No, no, verse 30, it's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. Jesus says he's our righteousness, he's our holiness, he's our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's quoting from Jeremiah 9, 24. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. There are many things we can boast about. We can boast in, in our awards Maybe our trophies on our trophy case, maybe our clothes. We can boast about our career, our grades. We can boast about our children, uh, our, our house, 
the latest toy, our accomplishments. There's some people, whenever you talk with them, they give you their resume, right? Now, it, it's fine. It's fine. Hear me this. It's, it's fine to take pleasure in some of those things and to have a sense of accomplishment. But listen, they are lousy props to lean on for your significance. Your identity cannot be wrapped up in any of those things. It's when we turn into our identity in Christ and we derive our significance there, it has the power to withstand the ups and downs of life. No, boast in what God has done for you. Boast in the riches we have in Him, for these things cannot ever be taken away. We are a gospel community, equal before Him, composed of ordinary, simple people who have been changed by the grace of God. Boast in that. Boast in Him. Boast in what God has done and is doing in your life because there's no place in the Christian community to look down on anyone else. There's no place for superiority. And the way that the world judges others, the standards by which people are appreciated, accepted, and, and honored are not the same way God measures people. And if we ever, we, if we ever see those worldly standards creeping into our lives, we need to get rid of them. Because they're the very opposite of what God does. So I ask you the question, as you look at others, whose lens are we looking through? The world's or God's? We need to look on others and treat others as God has treated us, not on the basis of worldly standards and what they can do for us, but on the basis of grace and love. Have you ever said, and I have said this, have you ever said, now that person right there would make a good Christian? What in the world are we saying? It means that I'm looking at his good qualities and from a human perspective of what he could bring to the table. Listen, we bring nothing to the table in our salvation. We boast not in ourselves. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? We boast in him, Christ crucified. I need to get the third principle. Our bold message is Christ crucified. Our bold message is Christ crucified. Crucified. Look at me at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul speaks of himself and he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Now, why is Paul talking like this? Well, he's rejecting verbal bullying. There were many in his day and still today who use the, the force of their personality or, or use the force of their position or use the force of the pulpit like a club to beat others to agree, to beat others to submit. Like the power-hungry sergeant in the Air Force. This man made sure everyone understood he was in charge. And this egomaniac screamed to an airman first class. He said, you have one stripe on your arm, I have four. You are nothing. You hear me? That makes you nothing. Nothing. And so when I bark, I expect you to move because I am in charge. And the airman replied, so let me get this straight. 
You're a sergeant in charge of nothing. (laughs) Now, we may be bothered by his insubordination there, but I think he put that bully in his place. Paul is putting these super apostles, he refers to them in 2 Corinthians. He puts them in their place with a bit of sarcasm around their bullying of their audience with their, with, with their wit and their show of eloquence. And these super apostles, that these leaders, they mimicked wisdom teachers. I mean, they were the big personalities. Everyone took notice of them. They were much more impressive than Paul, outwardly speaking. They were dynamic communicators. Their message was much more suited to their taste. And, and they drew a crowd as the people were attracted to their brilliant ideas. They met the need of the people who wanted to be entertained by rhetoric and flowery speech. They drew large crowds. Listen, large numbers don't necessarily indicate God's blessing. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying it doesn't indicate it. Because we make that often, oh, wow, they must be doing something right. Maybe. It may be an indication the crowds are hearing what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. I mean, how tempting it is to repackage the gospel to accommodate our audience and go soft on sin, strong on affirmation, and find you're a long way from the gospel Paul preached. There's one well-known preacher, and you'd know his name if I said it, but he was interviewed, and he admitted, oh, I never use the word sin. People already know about that. We mustn't become soft on sin. Soft on God's judgment or adapt Jesus' unique claims to appeal to the worldly mind. Paul could have come to them that way because Paul lacked nothing in education and intellectual ability. Paul could hold his own in a debate with his critics. He was a very smart man. Paul wasn't like that bumper sticker I saw that said, I took an IQ test and the results were negative. No, that didn't describe Paul. He could have come with eloquence and the philosophy they wanted, because I, I believe Paul had gifts in communication. He could have mimicked the super apostles. He could have turned that on if he wanted to. But he made a deliberate decision. I love verse 2 of chapter 2. I feel like taking this as a life verse right now in my, in my season in life. I have resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul never Repackage the gospel to accommodate his audience. Never. When he preached, he preached God's word. There was a small English village that had this small chapel, as many English villages do. The chapel was made of stone and, 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 and had a rather traditional ivory-covered wall. Over the arch, when the chapel was originally built, the, they inscribed the words, We preach Christ crucified. They wanted everybody to know when they entered there that what they, what they were there for, and there was a generation of godly men that did precisely that. They preached Christ crucified. Over time, the ivory grew, and pretty soon it covered the last word, and the sign said, we preach Christ. And the godly men changed, and there were other men who came along, and they preached Christ. Christ the example. Christ the humanitarian. Christ the ideal teacher. Years passed again, and the ivory grew, and finally it just said, we preach. And they did. Economics, social gospel, book reviews, 
and whatever else. Sadly, that is what's taking place in our day. I am not allowed, I am not allowed as a minister of the gospel to preach anything but the Word of God. You don't come each week to hear my views on economics or my opinions on politics or the latest social issue or my human ideas. You can get plenty of that ad nauseum everywhere else. My primary task is to tell you this is what God says. Let you form your own opinions, trusting that as you do, you seek to think biblically on all matters because I want you, church, to be established, not in what I think, but on the Word of God. And there is no place within the church of Jesus Christ for the mixture of human philosophy with divine revelation. God doesn't need it. So Paul says, no, I, I came to you, verse 3, I came to you in weakness and fear. I came to you with much trembling. Not what we think of with Paul. Say, like, what? He's making a contrast here to these strong, self-confident leaders that Paul didn't strut around. He relied entirely on what? Verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. You see it? Paul consistently proclaimed the message of Christ. He used unimpressive communication. And you go, what a church. The people aren't that very good to look at, and Paul isn't that great of a preacher. And I guess the pastoral search teams looking for a pastor have been doing it all wrong. They should be looking for the least intelligent pastor and the most unimpressive preacher. And you said, that's what we got. No, I don't know, don't, don't, oh, no amen there. But that's what we should be looking for. Why? Get that kind of person here. Because that would be obvious then The power comes from God. Is that what Paul's saying? I mean, is that a correct application? No, I think it misses the point. The application is this. Don't trust in those abilities. That's not where the power lies. The power does not come from what, what I or anyone else can do. But if God has given you the ability to communicate well or articulate the Word of God clearly or given you a sharp mind or many other abilities that He gives, then use those abilities for Him. Just don't rely on them. Don't think that because of our charisma or our cleverness or our beautiful way of communicating that we can somehow, that alone, convert anyone. Because we can't. I love that Paul accepted and embraced his weaknesses. He did that so that God's power and strength could be manifested through him. As Hudson Taylor put it, all God's giants have been weak people. Here's the encouragement. That no matter how weak you may feel, God can use you. He can use you in the church. He can use you to help establish other people. He can use you to proclaim the gospel. No matter how untrained or uneducated you may be, God can use you to proclaim the gospel. But we must always ask ourselves, are people drawn to you because of your strength? Because you you, you carry yourself as self-confident. Or are they drawn to you because of the substance of your message? Who are we trying to bring more attention to? Ourselves? Christ. And the temptation is for all of us 
to give the impression that we are strong enough to do this. I get that. I get it. I want to come across as someone who knows where he's going. I want to come across as a strong leader that's setting a direction for you. I want to come across that way. But my goal must be always to point you to Christ. It is Christ crucified that sustains you. It is Christ crucified that has the power to save and transform your life. And real community, gospel community, is the bringing together of people from all walks of life who can what? Boast in Him. Let Him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we're always tempted to turn the church into a club with our kind of people. With a, with a strict decorum designed to keep up the appearances and keep out the, shall we say, undesirables. But Jesus said, it's no credit to us if we love those who love us, our kind of people. That's easy. But Jesus said, we're to love the least of these and the worst of these, what we might call losers, enemies, whoever else may be. Pastor Mark Buchanan tells of a woman who called the church one day wondering if she could talk to her pastor. And he said, yeah, two of us sat down and met with her and she told us her troubled story. Her name was Wanda and Wanda was not our kind of people, he says. She was thirsty, all right, for beer and port and rum and vanilla extract, whatever. And she had only one way to pay for that, he said. I'll let you guess. She was desperate. Thirsty for something else. He says, I told her about the woman at the well whose life like Wanda's wasn't going well. But that she met Jesus and he offered her living water. I explained what living water was and asked Wanda if she'd like some. Oh, yes, she said, I would love that. That's what I need. He says, we prayed, she confessed, repented, surrendered. I mean, she drank deep. The pastor then jumped in. The other pastor jumped in and said, now, Wanda... This Sunday will be your first time in church. Don't feel you have to fit in right away. You can sit in the back if you like, come late, leave early, whatever is comfortable. And Wanda looked at him sideways and he said, why in the world would I do that? She said, I've been waiting for this all my life. And that Sunday, Wanda was there first, was there, was the first to arrive. She sat at the front and loudly agreed with everything I said as I preached. And she was the last to leave. The next Sunday, same thing, except she brought a friend, one of her kind of people. I preached on servanthood, and my main point was, if you've tasted the love of Jesus, you'll want to serve. She says it was communion Sunday, and all Wanda heard was the word servant, and she'd been listening intently to my sermon, if you've tasted the love of Jesus, you'll want to serve. And so as I called people come, to come up and serve communion, she walked straight up to serve communion. I flinched, he says. Then I remembered Luke 7, Jesus' words to Simon the Pharisee, as a woman not unlike Wanda washed Jesus' feet, and Jesus said, do you see this woman? I mean, do you see her? So the pastor says, I leaned over to Wanda, and I said, since this is your very first time in doing this, do you mind if I help? So Wanda and I served communion. 
And the best part, he says, was watching the faces of the people I love and serve and pray for and preach to. He said, not one flinched. They saw her. God chooses the weak. He chooses the lowly. He chooses the despised. Why? So that no one may boast before Him, but that all who boast, boast in the Lord. Church, that's gospel community. That's gospel community. Let's pray. God, help us to know what we're to do with this. We're not to just go, well, that was nice. And I have, a, I have a, a suspicion and we talk about something like this that uh, you bring people in our path and you might this week in which we're ready to see them maybe as an obstacle. And you want us to see as an opportunity. You might see them as kind of being in our way. And you want us to show them the way in Jesus Christ. And so God, whatever it looks like, Apply it to our lives, very personal way, as only you can do, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.